My name is Shelley Welton, and I teach energy and climate change law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. And I have the pleasure of interviewing today Professor Nathan Richardson, my colleague at the University of South Carolina, whose expertise lies at the intersection of climate, energy, property, and natural resources law. We're going to speak today about a paper he co-authored with Art Frost in 2014 entitled Comparing the Clean Air Act and a Carbon Price. And we also link to his piece on our website. So Nathan, thanks so much for joining me. Sure, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. So you write in this piece about the trade-offs that exist between a legislatively adopted carbon tax and an agency-driven administrative program to address climate change. And I thought I'd just start by asking, why do we have to choose between them? Yeah, yeah. If we'd, this, so this is a 2014 paper. If we'd written this paper in 2018, we would have like gotten relentlessly trolled on Twitter by people just like posting the image of the little girl who says, por que no los dos? Like, why can't we have both of these things? And I think the um, I, I think there's some short answers and a longer answer. Like one short answer is that like the paper is basically a thought experiment. So like imagine we've got to trade them off. Um, but of course, like it's not just a made-up thought experiment. There's some reason why we picked that trade-off, um, and that's because frankly, the two of us, uh, my co-author Art Frost and I, believe that that was probably necessary at the time. Well, why did we think that? One, we looked at Waxman-Markey, which was the most recent serious effort to do action or to do something on climate in Congress, and that involved trading off most of what was in the Clean Air Act. Most of what was in the Clean Air Act uh, with respect to climate would have been preempted or repealed. Uh, and in exchange, we get a cap-and-trade market with some international offsets and uh, and some other things that at least was thought at the time was a pretty robust climate policy. Um, so the thinking was at the time that like there's this grand bargain that, that if anything is going to be done in Congress on climate, it's going to be a grand bargain. And one of the things the, the climate left, if you will, has to bring to the table is some reduction in Clean Air Act authority. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that was true then in the sense that like I don't know that that was like a good faith offer that was ever on the table. The most notable piece of evidence for that is that like, Waxman Markey didn't actually pass. Um, so like why I think anything else would. Um, but I think that even today this this view has persisted among a lot of folks that like if Congress is going to do anything on climate it's going to require some change to the Clean Air Act. In fact, the like five people on the center right of climate policy that think we should have something I think I know all of them and I think I've heard all of them say something along the lines like we would have had or could have had Waxman-Markey if it wasn't for the intransigence of the left and like their refusal to give up the Clean Air Act which I think is wrong as a tale of the history um, and like I'm not even sure that deal was ever really there, and I certainly don't want to lie, like uh, put the blame for it at the feet of you know the 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 folks in the environmental movement that didn't want that. It's a complicated story. Others have written a lot about it, but but there's still a view. The reason to bring that up is there's still a view among again these like five people on the center right that like it's the left's fault for failing to give up the Clean Air Act. So whether or not this that was ever true, we thought it was probably true at the time, and some people still think it's true today. So it's worth thinking through this. I think in retrospect, though, two things have happened. First of all, it's fairly easy to fit this idea that there's a trade-off into uh, a series of, of, of moves in the climate debate made, frankly, by bad faith actors that like move the goalposts. You know, carbon pricing itself is an idea that comes out of the right, 
and uh, it's through a series of compromises in the early 90s and the Clean, the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 that it ever gets integrated in the Clean Air Act at all, although in a fairly limited way in Title IV. And inconsistently since then, whenever there's been a move to add to environmental policy, typically uh, climate policy, like some ideas get adopted from you know the moderate center or the center right, mm-hmm. and then the goal, you know Lucy moves the football. Um, this to some extent, you know, this parallels in very close way what happens with the Affordable Care Act. Like, you know, Mitt Romney will not support the federal version of his own program, essentially. Right. Um, so I think there's some danger in this kind of, so one, one reason why thinking may have changed is that, like, you see this pattern and, like, you want to stop playing that game. Um, another is that because we've waited and because more evidence on the severity of the climate problem has emerged, then the desire to just put all possible tools on the table, the need to put all possible tools on the table, I think has become clearer and clearer. So let's talk a little bit about the politics of a carbon tax today. So at the time you wrote the piece, you explained, and I'm going to quote a sentence from your paper, as of today, the most politically plausible pricing policy appears to be a carbon tax passed as part of a larger fiscal reform package, end quote. So do you still think that's true five years later? Yeah, no, is the short answer. Um, you know, the the most dated part of this paper to me when I re- read it again is that, like, anyone cared about deficits. Like, or at least not, not the most dated, but the one that's, like, least in tune with, like, the way politics are today. So the idea that you would have this fiscal reform compromise, again, that mm-hmm. I think that plays into some, uh, some frankly, bad faith moves. Like, oh, if you want to have a policy that does anything left, it needs to be fiscally neutral. So, therefore, and, and, and if that were true, if that's the real ball game, then a carbon tax is particularly effective because, hey, it raises some revenue. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that that is the ball game anymore. You know, there's... There's parts of this paper and that that part in particular that reads like, let's just hear you know two naive neoliberals develop uh, debate climate policy and like that was my rejected sitcom idea like NBC <laughs> says like don't email me anymore, uh, but you know that's the part that makes it seem the most like that. Never the, that doesn't mean that I think we should reject the idea that like a technocratic policy that tries to take the most efficient approach to reducing carbon emissions shouldn't be at the core of whatever we do. But I don't think that raising revenue is magically going to unlock some kind of political compromise that otherwise Mm -hmm. wouldn't be available. So let's talk about if, let's just say we could get the politics in place for a carbon tax. What would your ideal carbon tax look like? Uh, In terms of of level, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, 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 yeah, I'd, I'd have to see numbers on that. I mean, like kind of the number I have kicking in my head is like, well, let me put it this way. I'll take whatever I can get. You know, if you told me I could get a politically viable $5 a ton carbon tax, I would say let's do that today and then make tomorrow's push to ratchet it up because I think it's easier to do that once you have it in place. Would you say that even if you had to trade off Clean Air Act oh, regulatory authority? Well, it, when I wrote this paper, no. But also something that's happened since I wrote this paper is that my faith in the ability of the Clean Air Act to create any meaningful climate policy has, has dramatically declined. And by, I should be clear on that, that... Um, when I wrote this paper and today, I'm not saying that there's no ability to have regulatory tools in addition to pricing tools be effective on carbon. Um, uh, you know, there's a long history, uh, energy efficiency standards, uh, government support for basic art, uh, research and development of non-pricing policies that can be really effective in environmental policy and in climate. I think particularly with something like R&D subsidies, even your most 
uh, you know, your most hardcore neoliberal economist would admit that that is like a great, you know, there's some public goods that can be created mm-hmm. there. It's a good use of government money. Um, so my enthusiasm for some kinds of regulatory policy was not low at the time I read this paper, and it's not low now. But with respect specifically to the Clean Air Act and the ability to get big economy-wide or at least sector-wide emissions reductions, uh, I was fairly enthusiastic at the time. Uh, I wrote a lot of papers about it. Um, those papers, I look back and say, man, I was a little naive about that. Um, we thought at the time both that there was a policy that would survive court challenge and still provide some fairly robust reductions. I'm not sure that's true now. Um, we may never know for sure because the Supreme Court stayed the Clean Power Plan and then the D.C. Circuit continues, I think, wisely to punt on it. Um, and then also there was a belief that looking at the history of the Clean Air Act, that once you get a policy in place, it's politically robust. That generally speaking, you know, the, say the, the ozone NACs, uh, uh, the air quality standards are reduced by one administration. It's relatively rare for the follow-up administration, even if they wouldn't have put the policy in place, to expend a lot of political capital and administrative time mm-hmm. rolling back mm-hmm. those policies. Environmental law, the, the belief was, is pretty sticky. Well, now you've got an administration that put a bunch of fossil fuel lobbyists in, in charge of the EPA, and they're either doing nothing, which is inconsistent with, or was, is consistent with what past practice was, or actively rolling things back, trying to do the minimum possible to like not get sued in a Massachusetts v. EPA lawsuit. And I think if I'd known that at the time, uh, I wrote this paper and I wrote a bunch of other stuff talking about how to design climate policy within the Clean Air Act, I'd be a lot less optimistic. So even if you have a new, you know, let's say you had a new Democratic administration in 2020, and they just try to do Clean Power Plan 2.0, you know, probably stronger because the consensus is now like Clean, Air, Clean Power Plan is actually pretty weak, but you know they just tried to do that. I think it either gets struck down by the court or immediately turned around by another Republican administration in the future. I just don't have any confidence that that's sticky. Of course, your legislation could get rejected too, but in a world where it's hard to get legislation, it's also hard to repeal it. So. I have a lot more confidence in, and, and I think we really need legislation. I think that's the only way the United States gets a meaningful climate policy now, um, which doesn't necessarily have to be a price. You could amend the Clean Air Act and give more power to EPA, but, um, but I think the only way you get the votes and the only way you get a durable long-term policy um, uh, is it, it, something new and different from the Clean, uh, the, the Clean Air Act. So a new, if a new Democratic administration were to sweep in in 2020, you would urge them not to use their Clean Air Act authority? No, I wouldn't say that. I just would urge them not to rely on it. Like, there's one lesson you could take from, from Obama's eight years. You could say, well, well, his administration wasted the first two or three or four years trying to get action through Congress on climate that failed, and then they didn't have time to get through their, uh, their Clean Air Act uh, uh, policies before they could insulate it from the Supreme Court or, from, or make it, uh, you know, get industry to take enough actions that it kind of is bound into the undergirding, the framework of what, yeah. what environmental policy looks like. I can't reject that story completely, but I don't think that's the right lesson to take. I think, I think the lesson is, like, or, or, or if you saw that story, then maybe your reaction would be on day one, try to move forward with the Clean Air Act and say legislation is never going to give us what we want. It's just a fool's game. If you don't have the vote, like if both chambers are Republican, maybe that's your only choice. But if you have, you know, if you have enough votes in the two chambers of Congress to potentially get some kind of legislation to, even if you have to make some compromises, uh, I think that should should be what you do. How do you make those? Who do you have to make those compromises with? Like. 
Do you make a compromise that brings Joe Manchin on board? Do you make a compromise that brings Lindsey Graham on board? Do you make a compromise that brings Lisa Murkowski on board? I don't know. I don't know what those look like. But I think you have to take another bite at that apple or you're you're going to face the same problems that the last administration did and you get nothing. Your, your only hope is that the that either you have enough votes in the legislature to get through a policy or that the political center of the country has shifted. And polls show that it does. It's just that the Republican Party hasn't shifted. Um, that, that, that shift has happened enough to allow legislation to go mm-hmm. through. All right. Well, so let's talk about the future legislation that we might see out there then. Okay. Um, so we're in the middle of a moment where the big idea for climate progress seems to be the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would just ask you to use some of the criteria that you apply in the paper to a carbon tax and some sort of Clean Air Act solution and evaluate how you think the New Green Deal stacks up as a climate yeah. policy. It's, it's hard because the, the, the Green New Deal is... It's, it, it's there's not enough detail in it to a- answer a lot of these questions, which isn't intended as a criticism. Like it's a policy statement, it's a wish list, but it is not, uh, it, it, or it's 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 a wish list and it's a resolution and it's a statement of goals, but it's not a policy statement that has enough detail to answer questions like what legal risk does it create, mm-hmm. um, how much does it create a model that other countries would be able to follow or be able to look to and use as an example of what. You know, a big modern developed economy should do on climate. What does it? How much flexibility does it have long term to change in reaction to new information? Like, there's just not enough in there to talk about it. Um, I think broadly speaking, if I understand the the way the Green New Deal is pitched, then it envisions a kind of all of the above approach to return to what we started. Uh, you know, a, a, a carbon price is. Part could could table, be is yeah. on the table as part of the Green New Deal. New Deal. So is you know the 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 most direct and uh, uh, like government involved policies like spending a bunch of money on new new nuclear plants. Um, and so is a regulatory approach, of course, like one that sets you know building uh, uh, building and efficiency standards are a core part of that. I think one of the ambitions is to essentially remodel every building in the country. That's a regulatory approach, and one that on modest scales has been pretty effective. Some people say it's really effective. Some people say it's like modestly effective, but like let's say it's effective. Would it be similarly effective if you try to do it in every building in the country? Well, I don't know, but there are some. Building efficiency standards is a good example. There, there are some things that, because of wealth constraints or because of lack of information or all kind, of, or all kinds of other problems, that a carbon price can't really, or it's going to be very difficult for it effectively to create the kind of changes you need. So to patch over that, to create, to fix that gap, you know, a regulatory approach is needed. Something like building efficiency standards plus some subsidies, plus some, you know, some money to unlock that wealth constraint, so that people who are living in mobile homes from paycheck to paycheck can actually upgrade. Um, and reduce their own bills as well, so provide uh, individual benefits and social benefits. And the, you know, a carbon price alone, as much as I might want to cheerlead for it, I can't close that gap. Um, so now I'm reading some details into the Green New Deal, but right. I th- but I think they fit in with the general philosophy. Um, you know, some of the other stuff in there about uh, about universal health care or about um, like a you jobs know, guarantee, yeah, jobs guarantee and stuff like that. Like I, to me, that's not climate policy. Now I I appreciate that like there's that maybe that helps you get a bill through or maybe that creates like a broader uh, th- that like that addresses justice and environmental justice in broader ways that are important. I get that, but I can't really fit that into the framework here to see like directly like whether that helps us or not. So do you think that 
sort of this robust insistence in the Green New Deal that you can't divorce climate policy from equity and justice. Do you think that is actually going to be the building blocks of a successful coalition from hmm. your experience watching these climate policies go yeah. through, or do you think that's going to be a challenge for it? I think it'll be both. So like if you look at Washington's experience, Washington State, so some of their they've had repeated efforts to impose a carbon price that have failed for a variety of reasons, but at least one of them failed uh, because it didn't bring the left and the environmental justice movement on board. That this easily got character, a carbon price got easily characterized as like uh, neoliberal half measure mm-hmm. policy that like doesn't address the deep inequity that climate drives. And climate justice are inextricably linked in that, as we all know, People with the least ability to defend themselves against the harms from climate are the people that are going to be hurt the worst. And, as I just suggested, they're the ones that are least able to adapt or even take mitigation actions like insulating their house. So that's true to some extent. So I think it's politically savvy, based on that experience, to try to, from the beginning, make it clear uh, or or to protect your left flank, essentially. But it's a risk because uh, you you, you might lose your... Do you lose Dianne Feinstein? Do you lose Joe Manchin? Do you lose uh, Lisa Murkowski? Do you lose uh, uh, Do you lose Lindsey Graham? Now, as I suggested earlier, if you go into this saying, "Well, we need Lisa Murkowski and Lindsey Graham to vote for this policy," like now you're back in Lin- uh, Lucy moving the football world, where yeah. like if you start with that policy, you may be doomed. And w- w- without casting, you know, person without personally accusing any of these folks of that. There are bad faith actors in this game that will try to moderate your policy only to kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. Like there's, but but if you don't have the votes, you don't have the votes. Nevertheless, as like an initial move, and and thinking about the people who, who you know AOC and the folks who are proposing this coming from the left, I, I think it's savvy for now. And in fact, it's possible to tempt the. Uh, tempt Republicans into some overreaction that will end up hurting them in the long run. That they'll, they'll go out so far ahead of themselves because they think it's easy to criticize the Green New Deal that that gives actually some running room for policy to move on the left or maybe more towards the center left. Uh, and then rather than having those voices from the center and the center right in there at the beginning, essentially destroying the policy from the inside or moderating it so much that folks on the left can't support it. I don't know. I'm not a vote counter, but like... I'm not ready to say that this is that it's a political mistake to include these justice issues from the beginning. And um, as I've long told my conservative friends that care about climate, like if your voices aren't part of this, we're going to get a climate policy one way or another. And if your voices aren't part of this, you're going to have a climate policy that comes from the left uh, and you're not going to like that. Um, So get your voices in this. And it's possible that that creates kind of an interiorum, like, oh, my gosh, this might actually pass. We should talk to these people rather than like this will never pass unless you talk to us early, uh, which has been proven in the past to be completely unsuccessful. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a really fun discussion. Yeah. Thank you so much.